0: Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics lecture by Eamon Keane on the topic, Sin, Redemption and the Resurrection. This March 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Eamon Keane is the head of social science at Redfield College. Thank you very, very much, Ardas. And once again, it's a great pleasure to come here and to speak. And, um, with Easter coming up, I think this topic is particularly apt because the liturgical year, the church, through which the church takes us through all the mysteries in the life of Christ, and um, Lent, is the time leading up to our celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the center of our faith. We know that the Eucharist is the source of summit of the Christian faith, but without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no Eucharist. Because the Eucharist is the deep celebration, and the way in which in the most profound and real way, the fruits of Jesus' death and resurrection are made available to us. Now, I'm reading a book at the moment, I'm going to start reading it. I'm only browsing through it at the moment. It's written by a fellow by the name of Anthony Flew. Professor Anthony Flew. He's an English philosopher. He was an atheist. A very influential atheist. He must be in his 80s. I was wrong 82. So he would have been an atheist a couple of years back. And he wrote a tract back in I'm not sure it was the 60s or 70s. He wrote a philosophical tract against belief in God. Uh, justification, a defense of atheism which was the most widely published philosophical tract of the 20th century mm. anyhow he's changed his mind <laughs> and he's written this book and um, titled There is a God and the subtitle title is and The Atheism Changed His Mind and it is quite a brilliant book really but one of the things he's talking about in it, he's talking about, um, you know, what has changed his mind is the evidence about the structure of the universe which has come to modern science. Particularly the structure of the DNA and so on. And it's so complex, but so ordered. It could not possibly, and you go through the various stages, matter, to living and sentient being, rationality, um, the possibility to 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 think, to transcend your own experience, to interpret your experience, to make moral judgments, and then the self-consciousness, the consciousness of the I, the I, me, you know, our inner consciousness, and so on. And his conclusion is that when you work out the mathematics of the. Po- the mathematical probability that you could have such an evolution coming together in randomness without a supreme intelligence guiding the process is just impossible and he takes the example you see you look at the table he said it doesn't matter how many millions and billions and trillions of years that table is there And no matter how much that table is influenced by its environment, that table is never going to be able to write a sonnet, a Shakespearean sonnet. Not to mention a whole Shakespearean play. Not to mention a whole philosophical treatise, or a moral treatise and so on. So anyhow, I was just reading today a very interesting thing to him. He says, he's talking about the universe. And he's talking about some um, existence cannot emerge, being cannot emerge out of nothing. So he said, if we look at the he said there's two explanations either the universe is eternal or God. Now, we can figure out through science that the universe isn't eternal. So therefore, he said that leaves us with God. But he says, then the human being cannot comprehend how God can be eternal. And then the next part is a vital one, but he says, God can. <laughs> right? And there's the answer to the conundrum of the world. Anyhow, so I put this up here. In the beginning, God created in the heavens and the earth. How it came about? Well, science can reflect on that and the be theories and counter-theories and so on. The important thing is God sets it in motion. God is the intelligence behind the God-brought being into existence. Alright? And it's the opening words of the book of Genesis. Because everything I'm going to say tonight about the death and resurrection of Jesus hinges on that first truth. The God question. And Pope Benedict in his book Jesus of Nazareth he says he bases his book on that This is essentially a question, a response to the God. It's concerned with the God question, the question of God, and it's become so dominant again in philosophy. For a while there, we thought God had been exiled to the margins. He's far from it, and thanks be to God for that, and that's a great opportunity for the new evangelization and so on. Now, and of course, in creating, most importantly, the crown of the physical creation, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created And he called them to live in harmony with each other by way of their harmonious relationship, the one of creature to creator, a relationship of love with himself. And of course, we know in Christ that God, the creator, is ultimately the Holy Trinity, the Trinity of persons. And when God created man, he created him as male and female, meaning he created him to live in communion with God and in communion with others. Now, two beautiful passages from Scripture, and we know that the whole creation which came into existence as a result of God, who we know through Christian revelation is a God of love, who is a personal God, who has revealed himself to us, he has made himself known, First of all, he's made himself known to a certain extent in what he's created. Now, do any of you you get annals? There was a very good article in the last edition of Annals, written by an English convert, I think. And he was talking about how he followed some of the traces and clues. Just like this fellow, Anthony Flew, did. And he followed the signs and led him, this other bloke, and led him into the Catholic Church. But he's talking about, he makes a, a, he is a very, very he is a great insight. He says God has left just enough traces in his creation to lead us to himself, in other words, to challenge reason. But not too much that he makes it impossible for us to say no to. Not Pardon? Not too, not too little. Not too little. But also not too much. Also not too much to make it that he'd Give it us an offer we couldn't refuse. In other words, Somewhere in that mystery, the mystery of the traces of His being in our creation, Saint Paul says, ever since the beginning of creation, the power of His deity has been there to be seen in the things that He has made. All right. So, and the perfections of creation—sorry, the yeah—the perfections of creation are only a reflection of the degree to which these perfections are present in an infinite state. How we want to describe it in God. Now, and here we have the whole of the universe, the whole of existence, would just again spring back into nothingness if God did not sustain it with His loving and creative hand. And that's true about our own life, of course, because you know what I'm getting at here is one of the consequences. Of original sin, an actual fact was that, the base of original sin is pride. And I suppose the way I understand pride, it's basically a refusal to recognize God as God. And it goes to its ultimate degree when, the, as it says in uh, Sam, I think, or there somewhere, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Now, we can be very, very foolish, and we're not just talking about the atheists. The big challenge, one of the greatest of the greatest of virtues probably, is the virtue of humility. We lead our lives at times, if we all face it honestly, with such a, such a lack of humility. And that lack of humility will express itself in our lack of trust in God's providence. Our refusal, at least on the psychological level to accept the crosses that God sends us. Our, our, um, our sin and our failure, of course, to trust in God's forgiveness and to rely on His grace for repentance and for transformation and so on. But we lead so much of our lives as if God does not exist, It's not just be atheists that do it. And, for you created my inmost dream, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, we made it the image of God, and it has been revealed to us that God is love. That's the picture of Our Lady of the southern Cross. Isn't it? the beautiful painting that was done for um, world youth Day, hanging down at St. Mary's Cathedral now. Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless. If love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in of course we can't live without love, because we were created in the image and likeness of God. We were created for eternal communion with God. Of course, we didn't, a problem arose at the beginning. Our first parent saint. When the sins, they became alienated from the full truth about their own being. They weren't completely annihilated from it. They weren't totally corrupt as Protestantism as well. But they were alienated from the truth of their own being. But that alienation sprung from their first of all, they alienated themselves from God. When they refused to accept their creaturely status that they were creatures of God and that they owed everything they had to their Creator. And that whatever the power of intellect that God had conferred on them and the freedom He conferred on them, which made them superior to the rest of the created universe, they took pride in that and did not give thanks to God or allow it to become the means by which they would accept God's self-revelation and respond and conform their life to that. The thought of that or pride came in. They took to themselves the gifts of God and they stamped their own contrary meaning on them gifts. And if you look at it, you could see that's an aspect of all sin. It's certainly at the heart of all our problems in the world today. And we can trace it right back. It's an inability to direct the whole of creation beginning with our own life according to God's plan. Now, and of course the consequence of the word is asking. Alienator from God. Friendship of God severed, broken. We had breached. We had rejected that invitation that God extended to us. We lost the gift of supernatural grace as they say in, in theology and doctrine. And we could do nothing to restore that. Now the trouble with, you know, I was reading a thing recently, it a letter that was sent around by someone and there's a thing in it, you know the, uh, one of the classical uh, smart arguments of, athe- of atheism, you know if God is good and God created the whole universe, how do you explain that? And everything in it. How do you explain the existence of evil? And the story was that this university professor pretty did any of you read this letter up and ground? No? Right, this smart University Professor and ST said please his class, Right, is there anybody here who believes in God? And just kinda you know how you can become intimidated in these um, kind of environments mm-hmm. at times. This person believed in God kind of reluctantly, but up to the time he said, I do. The professor said to well, do you believe God created everything. The said, I do. Do you believe God created the universe and the world? I do. Do you believe God is good? The young said, so. I do. And then he said, well, then God was the creator of evil. And the young student felt very, very kind of, um, oh, I don't know. He felt pretty shaken by that. He didn't respond to it. So the lesson went on for a few minutes more. And then, all of a sudden, another student put at the hand a quiet student in the corner and he said Professor, he says do you believe in darkness? and the pro- professor said I do and the student said, well there is no such thing as darkness the professor said, what do you mean? the student said darkness is merely the absence of light They so he said Professor, he said do you believe in cold? professor said, I do. The student said, There is no cold. Cold is merely the absence of energy, the absence of heat. So this, at this stage, the professor was, what was going in there. The young person said to him, Professor, do you believe in evil? And the professor said, I do. And the student says, Well, he said, evil is merely the absence of God. actions of the good. Now it's attributed to Einstein. that it was Einstein it was huge. I don't know the truth is in that. But we had no way of breaching the vo- of, of, we had no way of repairing the damage, the alienation, the separation God, eternal damnation would have been our future, our destiny God did not do something for us. And that breach, that breach in the relationship with God we call original sin. Now, original sin is ultimately a mystery. But as people will say, as theologians say, if you want to see evidence of original sin, just look at your own worst side. Despite all the creation of grace and so on, we still sin, the consequences of it, they're very, very incomplete. The, the, the lack of peace and harmony in the world, and so on. And, I, and, and of course, one of the ultimate consequences of that original sin is atheism. And, you know, the devil, in the temptation to our first parents, he said, You know, did God say to you that if you partake of the fruit, etc., etc., and what the devil did, he planted the doubt in the mind of our first parents about the goodness and the love of God. And Pope John Paul II said that fear to be what the devil did in that temptation, he struck at the God of the covenant. He struck at the fatherhood of God. He struck at the truth that God is a benevolent and all holy. And all good, any good description you want, God is that to the infinite degree. The devil questioned that. And of course, he also appealed to the pride, to the possibility that a being with intelligence can always set himself up as the supreme arbiter of good and evil. In other words, a being with intelligence is always capable of deluding Himself or herself or it if we're talking about a spirit or whatever is always capable of deluding itself that they are God. It's the ultimate delusion. And of course, from months you diminish God's death, from months you put aside the fact or reject that God of the very essence of things, God We owe God our total obedience, we owe Him our our total love. If we don't commit ourselves to that, we'll end up rejecting Him and denying His existence. Atheism is another consequence of original sin. And here we have Nietzsche. God is dead and we have killed Him. This is a certain amount of truth in it. The second part is truth. We have killed Him in human consciousness to a certain extent through our sin. As Pope Pius XII said, it was repeated by Pope John Paul II, the loss of the sense of God is the great tragedy of the 20th century. And along with the loss of the sense of God comes the loss of the sense of sin, or does the loss of the sense of sin give rise to the loss of the sense of God? You work it out everywhere. you won't come to the definitive answer. But of course, if God is dead, and of course, and what's more, the world is flat. In other words, it's just as ridiculous a comment as trying to assert that the world is flat. I put that in there. Does it make sense, that connection? And what's more, the world is flat? Can you see what I'm getting at? I oh, want to. No, I'm using that in another context. Do you think it's a worthwhile comparison? You do? Alright. Now, and of course, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and then he's. Templeton Prize lecture like in 1983 says, And if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trade of the entire 20th century, here too I would be unable to find anything more precise and pity than to repeat, once again, men have forgotten God. And one of the consequences of the death of God in the world, the death of God philosophy, is the death of man. And of course, here is one of the, somebody said, one of the missionaries, of atheism in the world today, and this book I, I refer to there by Anthony Flew, he is writing in response. that He's one of the guys, Richard um, Dawkins and others, Stephen Hawking and so on, David, um, and he has made a fort out of um, trying to convince people that God doesn't exist. Here he is. And this business in England there a few months ago, I remember reading about that, where they put the, the biggest virtue the all the buses, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And of course Dawkins, he supports embryonic stem cell research, abortion, assisted suicide, and euthanasia. And he referred to Blessed mother Teresa of Calcutta as sanctimoniously hypocritical. He castigated her for saying in her Nobel Peace Prize, acceptance speech, that abortion is the greatest desire of peace. I'm just putting in there this to show you the consequence of our alienation from God through original sin. I'm not passing any judgment on Dawkins. God will judge Dawkins. The point is that um, this is the consequence of the, our state of alienation from God, what happened. And It certainly is a delusion. Now, um, these are another atheist and um, Peter Singer, he's even come up with new commandments, five new commandments, to replace five old commandments. And basically, you say we're right back there in the garden of Eden. That's what the devil did. Did God say to you, Oh no, you make up your own, one. make up your own commandments, in other words? Of course, the end result of all that is that there's no commandment. All that there is is power and efficiency. Right? And, uh, and of course, no objective assessment can support the view that it is always worse to kill members of our species who aren't persons than members of other species who are not. Now, and there's another example. You have the Auschwitz. And there you have the poor aborted child. And what was Singer's starting point? I don't believe in the existence of God. etc., etc. So therefore the question doesn't arise that man is made in the image and likeness of God. And you can go on and on. And the way in which the truth about humanity is contradicted as a consequence of sin, this original sin and its throw on effect throughout human history. For sin abounds, alright? It is. First British human animal hybrid embryos created by scientists. No animal human hybrid, what they did. Alright? This is an artistic creation of it, but this, this is what actually taking place in the laboratory. And of course, what it, res- what it results in is a terrible lack of respect for the dignity of human life. When God is placed on the margin of human affairs or when he's exiled from them completely, as the Second Vatican Council says, without the Creator, the creature vanishes. Help control the human population, for without the Creator, the creature will disappear. Thank you for not reading Message and Logo of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. There's such a movement, I don't know how many members have, and so on. Because, yes, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. If there is no immortality, there is no virtue. Now, okay, so, as we say, we're in deep need of reconciliation. Reconciliation with each other. Crying out for forgiveness. we will have allowed to be forgiven for it. Now, Now, um, another truth. Now, let's go back again. Just as the book of Genesis began with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, the Gospel of St. John begins with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the dark. The darkness has not overcomes. So, yesterday, the reading at Mass yesterday was the reading of the Feast of St. Joseph. Isn't that right? And the reading was um, where it says, it gives the um, genealogy of Jesus, and it comes through St. Joseph. and, And Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, the mother of the Savior, of whom the Savior was born. Right, So obviously, from what has been true, we needed a saviour. And who could save us from that state of alienation from God, and because of that, the alienation from our own humanity? Only God himself. Only the one who creates the watch, ultimately, knows how to repair it. If you want to repair something that's broken, you have to know how it's supposed to function and it's functioning properly. God is the only one who could repair our humanity. God is the only one who could save us from the consequences of our own sin. And, the, and God is revealed as a trinity of person for the Son and Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the eternal word, the second person of the Holy Trinity, as an act of mercy and the love of God, came to dwell among us. He took to himself a human nature. And he was like God in everything except sin, as far as his humanity was concerned. For God so loves the world that he gave his his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Christ, of course, is the key to everything. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We find the answer, all truth about God and about our human nature. We find it in Jesus. Whoever follows Christ, a perfect man, becomes himself more a man. And Jesus identified with us. He went down into the waters of baptism. Not that he needed to be forgiven for anything, or that he was a bearer of anything. But as a sign, he immersed himself in these waters which washed away our sin, because he was the one who would carry them sin on his own back. He identified with us completely. And of course, there's a beautiful picture of Jesus as the woman at the well. She meets her saviour. It doesn't matter what she has done. Jesus hasn't come to condemn. He's come to forgive. He's come to be the expression. He is the expression. The incarnation of God's forgiveness. He is the incarnation of God's will that we be saved and not lost. And he calls all to follow him, and his saving love and saving reach reaches out to everyone, no matter what their station in life, no matter what their ethnic, religious, or whatever background. As Pope John Paul II said in one of his, I think, in one of Jesus, in some way, has united himself with every person, every human being. In some way, he has united himself with every person. In some way. No one is beyond the reach or beyond the touch or beyond the saving mercy of Christ. And these now are a couple of slides from um, the Passion of the Christ, the preparation of the Last Supper. He calls to give the apostles, he calls them to celebrate the Passover with them, the Passover in which the Jewish people remembered and reenacted the great saving actions through which God led their forefathers. Out of the slavery of Egypt and led them into a life a land flowing the milk and honey where, they be, where liberty where they would experience liberty and they would live as free men free men created by God and they would live in that dignity which belonged to themselves as children of God they celebrated that they celebrated the Passover. but all of the Old Testament can be read and it, it, it can only find its definitive um, interpretation through Christ. All of the New Testament points forward to Christ. And the Passover was celebrated, which commemorated the, the liberation from the slavery of Egypt, is a prefigurement of the ultimate liberation. The liberation of the whole human race from sin, which would be bestowed as the sheer merciful gift of God Himself through the sacrifice of the God-man. And this is the institution of the Eucharist. It's the institution of the memorial of his death and his resurrection. The, the death of Christ on the cross is the center of history. St. Paul said, God creator, the world, for Christ and in Christ. When the world was created, of course God was aware of our sin. But, But the creation of the world was a moment, if you like, in historical terms, it was a moment only in the creative and salvific time of God to bring people to himself, while at the same time creating them with the freedom and the capacity to say no with the freedom and capacity to say yes to love love of God and love of all His other creatures who he created and delivered communion with that was the center of history and God's plan for his creation would be fully realized in his son in the crucified and risen Christ that's the center of history and, and that event the, cru- the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus the saving power, the saving reality which that represents is the center of history and is present in every moment in history it's the free gift that God gives us Jesus is the free gift of God to us he is God himself it's the gift he gives to him of himself and he makes it present throughout time and of course being material beings, not, we're, we're not pure spirits, we are a union of spirit and matter. We need signs, we need, God communicates to us through physical reality. His ultimate manifestation follows us in the body of Jesus. He who sees me sees the Father. He communicates to us in sacraments where he uses material rea- substances to commute to be the means through which he transmits his saving graces. And Jesus prepares for the ultimate and definitive sacrament, if you like, the sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross, the sacrament of his, of his self-giving, total self-giving to the Father, and the sacrifice of his total self-giving in reparation for the sins of the world. He lays his life down out of fidelity out of love, of unconditional yes to the will of the Father. In that, he teaches us. When the key lesson you will love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul. You will give yourself totally to the will of the Father. I do, I do nothing only what pleases the Father. My food is to do the will of the Father. The complete antidote. To the decision, to the temptation held out by Adam, by the devil, Adam and Eve. The temptation to say, "No, I will not serve. I will not do what they say. I will do my will. My will be done." He's total self-giving for the brothers and sisters. Greater love is no man than he lays down his life for his friend. And well, of course, God is our friend. We are called. That picture I gave there where Jesus, is the perfect man, those no, to follow Jesus becomes more a man, it was the example of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We were, kept, we were created not to serve ourselves, but to serve God and serve others. We were, caught, we were created to self-empty ourselves, to give ourselves as a gift. And again, Jesus manifests for us. He does He does it first. And then, through the gift of himself and the sacrament, through the gift of grace, through the gift of his Holy Spirit, he makes it possible for us to begin to walk in that direction. We will only enter that realm of freedom where we will be able to love with the heart of Christ without any restrictions, any impediments caused by sin and concupiscence, or whatever you like. when we we pass through death and enter into eternity with God. But Saint Paul says, who can save me from this body doomed to death? I do the things I don't want to do and I cannot do the things I want to do. Thanks be to God, Lord Jesus. Jesus. And his life was a life of suffering. From a flight into Egypt and already his life was in danger the kings of this world those who would use worldly power and turn it against God will and turn it against the the children of God for chasing him he returned from Egypt the whole throughout his life he was subjected to temptations like we are you know all the temptations are all there and then then three we hear about in the Gospels the temptation to power the temptation for bodily needs the worldly goods to bread the temptation to put God to the test etc. The betrayal Judas' betrayal of Jesus and of course in all of this There's a whole lesson on our own feelings and our own sins. How many times have we betrayed Jesus? And How many times do we get embarrassed about him in public? How many times are we afraid to raise the tough questions in a group discussion at work? Now, I know there's a question of prudence in there, no, but if you look, if we look at our own hearts, we all see at times we fail. Um, we prefer our own schemes, and the schemes of those around us and so on, other than Jesus. The washing of the hands. Again, the pursuit of worldly power, the truth. The truth didn't matter. What mattered was whatever... Was the political objective of the day. Doesn't matter if you saw how often does that happen in our parliament today? Where politicians vote for all kinds of laws sanctioning abortion and so on, and what happens is the young, sorry, the the weak and the viceless are condemned to death. Then the terrible whipping of Jesus. All that because of the sins we commit, particularly the sins we commit in the flesh. He bore it all. I was a love for God, I was a He bore it for us and speaks for himself. That cross, how he embraced it, because he knew that would be the cross that would hold up for all eternity the definitive proof that God loves us. And that it filled then Paul says, While we were still, by this do we know that God loved us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His mother, the death of the cross. Father, it's your hand that I commit my spirit. This is It is This is consummated, however it's translated. What does all that mean? He has come and is completed, he has given his life in fidelity and service of the Father, and for each one of us. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God shows his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. standing there all the time, associated with his suffering, accompanying from the very moment of the Incarnation, is his mother. She's there at all the vital moments. Her, she says yes. And because of her yes, God is able to enter human history as one of ourselves. She cares, she nurtures them in her room, she cares for them, she protects them. She manifests them to the world. She's there when he's presented to the wise men. She's there when he's presented in the temple. She's she's there at the marriage feast of and when he first that his power be shown. She's there at the foot of the cross, and then she's there at Pentecost when the church is born. And as we see again, she's there with him in glory at the end of her earthly life when she's assumed body and soul into heaven. And then we know that Jesus lived in the tomb for three days. And as we say in the creed, he descended into hell. And what does that mean by saying he descended into hell? It, it's expressed here very, very well in the catechism. I'll just read it to you briefly. Scripture calls the abode of the dead To which the dead Christ went down hell. Sheol in Hebrew or Hades in Greek. Because those who are there are deprived of the vision of God. Notice the way that's put. Those who are there are deprived of the vision of God. Hell is a deprivation of the vision of God. Evil is the absence of God. Just like Oh, the example there um, darkness is the absence of light such is the case for all the dead whether evil or righteous while they await the redeemer which does not mean that their lot is identical as Jesus shows to the parable of the poor man Lazarus who was received into Abraham's bosom it is, rep- it is precisely these souls who awaited their Savior in Abraham's bosom, whom Christ the Lord delivered when he descended into hell. Jesus did not descend into hell to deliver the excuse me, the damned, nor to destroy the hell of damnation, but to free the just who had gone before him. So that's what it means by he descended into hell. And then of course. Here's a picture of it, an art presentation of it. Jesus descended to hell, where he goes and preaches the good news to all the just and all the righteous people who could not enter in that communion, that total communion with God, because of the consequence of sin, they too are liberated and saved by Jesus. Then, of course, in all of that, we have the glory of the resurrection. And the empty tomb. For Jesus, the body that was placed in the tomb, not some kind of emotional, mystical body that was in some way independent of that body that was placed in the tomb, it was raised in the resurrection, as the catechism points out. It says that the resurrection is a historical fact that cannot be interpreted outside of the physical order. Because there was a lot of woolly um, heresies floating around about that. You don't hear so much of them today. But they were quite common in the 70s and 80s and 90s. That the risen Jesus, the body of the risen Jesus, was not necessarily identical with the body that was placed in the tomb. Oh yes, it was a transformed body. And it had taken on new qualities. It could pass through material reality. It could um, appear and disappear. But it was still the same body. And then. After his resurrection. For. Many days. He met and he appeared. To the apostles and other disciples. And there was no doubt about it. When you read the description. In the New Testament. It all points clearly to the fact. That the risen one was the same one who had been laid in the tomb and who died upon the cross on Good Friday. If Christ's body wasn't, didn't rise from the dead, then he didn't rise at all. Because I'm a unity of body and soul. And my total salvation, please God, will result in the reunification of my body and my soul and I've been taken up into eternal glory to live with the Holy Trinity forever. And look at this, the concrete myth of it, that beautiful saying, See Thomas, put your fingers into the wound, and know that I am not a ghost. And then of course, after a given period of, um, after 40 days here with us, he ascended, the whole Christ, the, he ascended back to the Father. And what did he do when he ascended back to the Father? He introduced our humanity into the Holy Trinity. He introduced our humanity into the Holy Trinity. i just try and find that here. Okay, but I said the theory of the Catechism somewhere. In his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus with his humanity united to his divinity. Introduce their humanity into the life of the Holy Trinity. That is the ultimate destination. God will for each one of us. That in Christ, we will come to share in the life of God. And already, since you are so closely connected with Christ from the very moment of his incarnation, Throughout his whole life, her whole being was, dev- was devoted to giving glory to God. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says in the Magnificat, and the first one to enter into that glory, body and soul, into heaven, is Our Lady herself. And notice the reason why I take this picture from Google Images is notice Our Lady in the Assumption. Being taken up into the life of the Holy Trinity. And again, the fear of the eternal Word, the eternal Son, in his incarnate, crucified, and risen state. And she's taken up and participated in the life of God. And Mary, Mary our mother, is the model of the whole church. She is the model for each one of us. And our hope our hope is that we too will come one day, we will join Mary in glory. Now this is what our hope is based on as Christians. This is what our hope is based on as Catholics. Now if that is the destiny of the human person, if that is what a human being's dignity is based on, that they are created by God and they are called to share eternally in the life of God, then how can it be using human beings as raw material in industrial processes, in chemical processes, as is going on today, for example. If the people who run the gulag and the concentration camps, if they had been imbued with a sense of the vocation of the human being that God called every person to share in his life, and therefore they would have to conclude that the value of each and every human being infinitely surpasses the whole of the rest of material reality, the non-human reality. Could they have done that? Well, of course they could. You can always reject God. You can know all these things. You can still commit mortal sin. That's the intellectual formation, but it's also the formation of the will? If you want to gain your life, you must do that And in again this is another vital kind of truth that's held up to us during Lent. The need for mortification. The need for penance. The need to conform the will to the will of God how our time. That will mean self-sacrifice. That will mean going against the grain. That will mean struggling to try and overcome what we know are our human defects. What are defects? Moral and human and otherwise. Doesn't mean we get all kind of Hannah gave give said, no, we rely on God. It's God's grace that allows us to achieve anything. But we also try to contribute our bit to our efforts. Of course, how then do we associate most closely with the body of the risen Jesus, the resurrected and glorified Jesus? How do we associate it with the assumed and glorified body of our living? How do we try to touch and receive power from the risen Christ through the Eucharist, the source and summit of the Christian life? When we receive the Eucharist, it's the glorified body of Christ that we receive. Body and blood, soul and divinity. Now, here's a quotation from Pope John Paul II, the cyclical on the Eucharist. The Son of God became man in order to restore all creation in one supreme act of praise to the one who made it from nothing. Remember the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Truly, this is the mystery of faith which is accomplished In the Eucharist, the world which came forth from the hand of God, the Creator, now returns to him redeemed by Christ. So what's the implication of our participation in the Eucharist? Our participation in the Eucharist is already this side of death. A participation in the risen life of Christ. It is also a participation in his act of restoring all of creation towards um, the will of God. To accept creation on the terms that God has offered to us. In other words, it challenges us to create a world in harmony with God's plan and God's will. And the only way we can do that is when we try to com- conform our own lives at the beginning to God's plan for our human existence. To try and embrace, to hold our hands and say, your will be done. And that must affect, to do that, it affects everything we do. Our work must bear the stamp of the resurrection. And the truth. Our family life must bear the stamp of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. The way we use our money and our resources must bear the stamp of the resurrection. In other words, they must be used to meet our own needs, and the needs of our family, but also with a view to the common good everything must be directed according to God's plan, which is for the flourishing of life and love and solidarity among his children. To be Eucharistic people is to be people who look to the risen Lord, to the crucified and risen Lord, as the source and summit of their whole existence. There are two ways to lead your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. He came to bring new sight to the blind, liberty to captives, freedom to the oppressed, We love to the extent we embrace and rejoice in the mystery of God's love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. O oh, happy fault, as the of saying goes, that one for us so great a Redeemer that despite original sin, St. Paul says, for sin abounded, grace and truth abounded evermore. Jesus, through his cross and resurrection, Leave us home to the bosom of God, to the Holy Trinity. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics lecture by Eamon Keane. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.